Hi, Joel and Suzanne. Hi, my name is Art Wimberly. Hi, my name is Lauren. Hey, Suzanne, my name is Brad. Hi, Suzanne, my name is Chelsea. Hi, my name is Mark. Hi, my name is Sarah. Hi, my name is Nicole. Hi, my name is Rachel. And hello, my name is Joel, and you're listening to the Anagram Journey Podcast with Suzanne Stabile. Today, we're going to tackle three relationship questions that you've sent in. The first, about dating from an eight. The second, about marriage from a seven. And the third, about life after divorce from a one. And to clarify, that question is from a one, not divorcing a one. Uh, But you'll hear it. Don't worry. I thought Suzanne really hit a home run on this episode, and I hope you think so too. It's the beginning of the new year, and for a lot of people, that means new small groups or new topics and material for an existing group. Let me throw the hat of the old Enneagram Journey curriculum in the ring. It's a video curriculum. It introduces participants to the Enneagram, helps them figure out their Enneagram number. It is not a test or an assessment that is going to tell you what your number is. Uh, You get to start your journey and figure it out for yourself, and then you get to go a little bit deeper. It's 12 sessions. Typically, people do uh, one session a week. And with everything kind of moving online and digital, uh, you can rent the videos and watch them at your own pace and then meet together either in person or uh, via Zoom or FaceTime group or I don't know if people are still using Skype. You can find it on the LTM website as well as the link for the next virtual LTM curriculum group. So if you don't have a group, but you're interested, we will have a new online group that will meet weekly beginning in February, and I'll be facilitating that one. So you can find all the information uh, and registration and guides and all that at lifeinthetrinityministry.com. Also in February, Grieving in the Enneagram, a two-night online teaching event with the Enneagram godmother, Suzanne Stabile, February 26th and 27th. It's going to be from 5 to 9 Central, both nights. It'll be a live event with a chat option uh, to submit questions and communicate with others watching around the globe. And the replay will be available until March 13th. So if you can't make it that night to watch it live, but you do want to watch it, uh, you can catch it later. And if you miss part or you want to rewatch it, whatever your reasons are, the replay will be available for two weeks after it. Grieving and the Enneagram with Suzanne. And now, let's start the show. Okay, and we're doing that locally. All right, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Good. How are you doing? I'm good. You seem good. Yeah, you know. Good mood. Kids are happy. And Everybody's happy. I'm yeah. still in the book. In the book. Hopefully soon. January 15th has to be. Well, today we are going to answer, we have three questions. There are a lot of questions that have come in, but I chose three and I think they hopefully will work well building on each other. Uh, And they're all about relationships and different kind of aspects of Enneagram and relationships and different stages of the life of a relationship, if that makes sense. It does. It makes me curious and it makes sense. You, and then it worked out really well, you and the Reverend recently, Aaron and Jamie Ivey have a book coming out. Is it a book? And then they're doing some conversations, recording around marriage marriage Mm -hmm. to support the book. So y'all did that recently. Yeah, we did. And I, um, I'm very anxious to hear it because I remember saying something at the end of like, I knew we were through and I said, you can cut this if you want to. 
And then I said something, and then, you know, we could see them, and they both got huge grins on their faces, and Jamie said, there's no way I would cut that, and I don't remember what it is, and I'm a little worried about oh, it. Oh, man, that means, that means that I would have. Yeah, that, I, I like having editing control. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we are going to go ahead and get this started. Okay, so we are going. we have got three questions from different anagram numbers about different stages of relationships. Let's go ahead and start off with this one. Hi, Suzanne. I am uh, anonymous from Puerto Rico. I am an Enneagram 8, and I have a question regarding female 8s and our relationship to uh, femininity, masculinity, and dating. Um, I was quite the tomboy as a child, and now as a 30-year-old female, I'm still drawn to what I call masculine things and spaces. At gatherings, I hang out with the boys and the cigars, and I've always interested in police work or the military and I like to watch sports and play basketball and I just wanted to see if this is typical of female eights. I'm also single and I want to start a family but I'm afraid of not respecting or trampling over some of the guys that I have unwittingly attracted so far. So I guess two things I'd love to hear your thoughts on single female eights and dating and uh, female eights and their relationship to femininity and masculinity. Muchas gracias y bendiciones. There's a lot of things here to yeah. discuss. First, I do want to say at LTM, we understand that the landscape around binary and non-binary gender is evolving and changing and our understanding is that it's changing and we still give people the space to identify the way they identify and talk the way that they talk and have respect for everybody. So let's just, just want to say that. Mm-hmm. All right, now you go. Well, the thing I just want to say is that if it was a scale and there is one and zero is femininity and 10 is masculinity, then not everybody is either a zero or a 10. Mm-hmm. And I think culturally it's likely that there is a difference in what is considered perhaps in the United States as uh, an aggressive corporate woman, for example, and an eight who's considered uh, somewhat masculine, whatever that all means. Right. So I want to start with that um, we have an eight, female eight in our family, and uh, she was in college. Almost all of her friends were guys. Remember, I can't remember the exact details, but wasn't she a groom's person in a friend's wedding? Probably. Or, probably. Yeah, because it was like, you're, you're the one, and I can't not have you because you're a woman instead mm-hmm. of a man. So uh, having said all of that, and I know that's a lot, and none of it is actually finished, I would say that I, too, now I'm not a female eight, but most of my friends in my lifetime have been men. I don't like events where all the women go and talk in the kitchen and all the guys go stand around outside and talk because I would rather be talking outside because I'm more interested in what they're interested in. So I just want to be sure that we don't connect all of what we're talking about to 
female eightness because I think it can be across the board. And I'm, I, I've always said about my daughters and me that we're feminine, uh, but we're not girly girls, and that's a thing. It's just that that's not what real women are. So now to make space for your eightness. I think it's really important for you to be able to tell people how you see the world. So in dating, for example, you need to be very upfront with who you are and with the things that you appreciate in uh, a date and the things that you can manage for yourself. There are conversations that can be had around Enneagram numbers that are very uncomfortable to have when you're having a male-female conversation. So it's always good in dating to introduce yourself as a female eight on the Enneagram. And if the other person doesn't know anything about the Enneagram, then that's a good place for you to start having really good conversations about differences. And I always encourage female eights in a relationship, particularly one that has the potential to be long-term, to make sure there is a place or two where they stand down and let uh, whoever they're dating make decisions that they will honor and follow. Regardless of Enneagram number or gender, nobody wants to follow all the time. However, eights are comfortable leading all the time. So it means you have to sacrifice something, some area where you're willing to not be in charge of everything. And I think it's a real problem in dating to make assumptions about anything, really. Just don't assume things. Talk about things instead. And, And the Enneagram really helps you talk about things. The things that she talked about, I recognize more as eight questions and not female questions. Right. Like you said, eights in relationships just want to, or not want to, but naturally just kind of lead and. Yeah, they lead everywhere. Male, female, wherever, whatever you identify as the eightness is what does that. And like you said, nobody, I I don't know. Anybody wants to follow all the time. No, I don't either. And I do think. Uh, we have to keep tipping our hat to cultural difference, which we're also committed here in LTM to learning more and more about. Mm-hmm. I think that that aggressive stance is always capable of doing that. Mm-hmm. So three, seven, or eight, and anyone in relationship, but three, seven, and eight just kind of go and do and come along or or don't, and that can be problematic in in early dating. I know. Whitney had to talk to me about that several times when we were dating about, hey, I want, I want to do stuff too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I want you to do the things that I want to do, right. not just. The other way around. Yeah. yeah. And I also think that eights fill a vacuum. So while somebody else that you're dating perhaps is deciding what they want to do, then eights already make mm-hmm. the decision. It's like, well, let's do this. And, and same with what I was going to say, and if I'm more passionate about what I want to do, yep. I'm, I've already started it. In my head, I'm already there. Mm-hmm. And you seem kind of on the fence about kind of timid, even 
approaching the subject with me, then I feel like we should do it. What you want to do, right? (laughs) Exactly. I'm a little uh, disheartened by there still being this idea that men are stronger than women and, you know, the whole thing. I think different Enneagram numbers have different strengths. Mm -hmm. I've often said that we complain a lot about AIDS, female and male AIDS, but particularly female AIDS. We complain a lot about them and about them always taking charge until we want them to take charge. And then we ask for what we've asked them not to do. That's got to be very confusing. Do you think when AIDS do find a relationship that they or a person they think could be the one or, or they're in love with me. Who knows about the one or not the one, but they love and they're in love that that will naturally, does that naturally soften an eight in that relationship? Does that make sense? It like does. That the, the things that she's worried about or she talks about being an issue, mm-hmm. maybe when that person comes along, those might not even be an issue anymore because you are vulnerable with in when that relationship and, right. and, 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 and. Yeah, I think so. And I I also think that she kind of said, I unwittingly ended up dating these guys. And she wouldn't choose a guy that she could push around or tell what to do all the time. And that is helpful and problematic at the same time. You know, when you get two eights together, then who leads and who decides who leads? And what kind of energy is in all of that? And you know my answer to that is you just divide up responsibilities and stay out of each other's way. I'm very encouraged to have a female eight choose to be so vulnerable in describing herself on the podcast and looking for, I'd like to start a family someday and I'd like to find somebody to do that with and I need it to be somebody who's stronger than I am. And I think the key there is you can find somebody who's stronger in some areas than you are, but unless it's another eight or a seven, you're not going to find somebody who's more passionate about their own desires than you are. Okay, so I feel like the Enneagram Godmother has now broken all that down. Now, what does the relationship guru, what advice do you have for... uh Words of wisdom. I'm convinced in terms of relationships that if they're going to last, friendship has to precede other activities. And I don't know that we talk enough in relationships. Again, there are lots of assumptions that are made, but not enough talking. And I think people who tend to not speak up owe it to themselves and to the other person in a relationship to speak up. And if you don't speak up, then don't complain later. It's like that's your option. Say what you think and say what you want and then negotiate or go along and don't whine. But you don't get to do one without the other. Like I, That's frustrating for me. And I know that there are people who are hesitant to say, This is what matters to me, and this is what I think, and I don't like it when you do that. But those things don't go away. So if you think you're going to be in a long-term relationship with somebody, then 
work it out. And it's almost like nothing can't be talked about if you approach it correctly, which is hard for me. You know, like there are people who process everything verbally, so it takes me sometimes a lot of talk to get to what I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know that well, don't you? I do, but I don't know if I share this with you, and sorry to take us on a little sidetrack. The other day, talking with my Enneagram Journey group, and we were talking about the verbal processing, and someone, uh, I think it was another seven, kind of shared that they verbal process some, and they were explaining it. And what I came to realize, I think, is that I think we, as sevens, verbally process through emotions, whereas y'all are verbally processing through thoughts to get closer to thoughts, and but we have to talk out the emotions to get to feelings. To the feelings. That's a good point. So that's a really good point. So now I'm so all that to say that I can't, uh, I can no longer take the cheap shots at all the verbal <laughs> processing because I think I do too when, when I'm working on bringing up the feelings. I also, with a little bit of hesitation, would say, I don't think all relationships are supposed to last. Yeah, I I remember, I think I saw it in a movie or something, where someone, they were together for so long, and then they broke up, and they made some snide remark about wasting their time. It's like, no, it's not. No, nothing's just, wasted. Just because it didn't end with happily ever after doesn't mean that it, it wasn't good. Why would a relationship be different than everything else in the world as far as the pattern? And you have to invest in a relationship that you're living in today. If you're investing in the future in a relationship, then you're, you, you already made a big mistake. Or investing in what the relationship was. Yeah. Ten years ago. Yep. Or, or one year ago. Can't be that. It reminds me of a story that my mom told me one time. You know, um, you know, but people don't know that my parents moved to, uh, 5,000 population town in the Panhandle in 1933. And my dad practiced medicine there for the next 57 years. And uh, I was in high school. I'll never forget it. I was in high school and I said to my mom, why are you friends with her? She gossips all the time. She gossips about people all over town. And you shouldn't be friends with her. And my mom said, you need to sit yourself down and that meant I was in trouble, and I sat down, and she said, listen here, I plan to live here my whole life, and there are only 5,000 people here. If I start getting rid of people, them off. by the time I get old, <laughs> I won't have anybody. And the thing about that that I took to heart more and more and more was that she lived to be 92, and she moved there in 1933, when she was like, I don't know how old, minus 2008 when she was born. I think because we have expectations for relationships, that they're going to be this kind of relationship. If they're not that, then we feel like we have to end them. Instead of, you you don't have to break up with everybody that you're ever friends with. And I think some relationships and some friendships are for a time, and they're valuable. They're valuable. And dating, different people 
that's very valuable because you learn about yourself and about the other person. And if you're not learning, then you need to read. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Our next question. Hello, Suzanne and Joel. My name is Kara, and I am calling from Uganda in East Africa. I am a seven on the Enneagram, and I am married to a wonderful man who is a nine. He is a Ugandan, so we do have an interculture marriage. My question is about marriage. I want to improve our marriage. I want to love my husband better. And when I ask him how I can love him better, what he thinks we need to work on, he says, everything is great and you are perfect. And I'm flattered, but I know that is not true. I also know he is trying to keep peace and avoid conflict. So how do I love him better? How do I allow him that space to be honest? And any insight to that would be just really helpful. Thanks so much for all you do. And please feel free to come visit anytime. Well, first of all, I never thought we were going to get a question from Uganda. And secondly, I'm all about going to visit. Do you want to know how much I know about the Ugandan culture? Yeah, none. As we go into this question? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. nothing. Uh, That's kind of where I am, too. We have an awful lot to learn, don't we? Mm -hmm. I am going to let you talk first about what it means when a seven says, I want to improve our relationship. Like, do you think there's a generic answer for what improve the relationship references? If I were to ask that question, I I would want specifics, not, I don't know. So no, not general. I think that every seven out there who's in a marriage committed relationship with anyone wants to make that the best relationship possible. You know, how can we enjoy this the most we can? And then in doing so, I think that's awesome when it's, you're asking the other one for, Mm -hmm. for their thoughts and feelings and opinions on that instead of uh, just relying on your own ideas of what will make it better. better. Thanks for all of that as a starting place for me to, work from you know sevens like change and nines don't dislike it but their orientation of time is the past and they don't imagine change well it feels to me like the nines that we know really well move back and forth from the present to the past and the present to the past but the future that they don't hang out there much there's not any there's, there's not enough balance for all three places. And so I think when you ask a nine what they want or what would make life better for them, and they say, we're good. I, I don't know. I think they really don't know. And I think it's uh, like choosing a restaurant. Where would you like to go to dinner? I don't know what the options are in Uganda, but in Dallas, Texas, there are a lot of them. And that's overwhelming for dad as a nine. But if I give him things to choose from, he knows what he wants. So it's like if you want to have a meaningful conversation with a nine, then make it multiple choice. Would you like to do A, B, C, or D? And I think she can say to her husband, 
I love you a lot and work on our marriage doesn't mean something's wrong. But I think for a seven, it needs spice. Mm-hmm. We just need to do spontaneity maybe. Uh, let's do something new. And I would suggest that if you switch things up a little bit, then the nine will respond with having more to say than what can we do to work on our marriage, even though it's good. Right. Is there something to the idea you and the Reverend have been a part of different spiritual formation groups and different small circles of people that y'all kind of nourish and, um, and are nourished by right in those groups for a nine in this scenario, let's say I'm a seven spouse partner is a nine and I'm trying to get some answers, get some, uh, some, something back, you know, come on. sounds like she's trying to Mm -hmm. come on. Would, you know, something like, okay, a dinner group Mm -hmm. where you get to with other friends that you feel safe with and that you both like not being stuck with. But then in that space of kind of talking about relationships and what other people are doing and that involving kind of some more people in a safe space might pull some more out of a nine. Is that true? Instead of being on the spot with their own Mm -hmm. thoughts. I feel like dad, when he's part of a group, it kind of stirs more things up than in him than when he's by himself or one-on-one. Yeah. The result of things being stirred up won't come in real time though. It'll come later, which is what she's looking for. So let's play this out. They get together a group. She's all excited about it. The group ends. They were at their house. The people leave and they're cleaning up. And she says, you didn't say much tonight. And he says, I thought I talked a lot. Dad and I have had that conversation so many times. But three days later, Dad will say something to me that came up in that group. And then there's a conversation to be had. And I think it's really important to not put pressure on nines. It feels like pressure to perform when you're asking them to do these two things. Believe that their presence matters and assert themselves. I bet it seems to me, and you can affirm this or not, that I talk about the childhood messages for nines more than any other number. That's probably fair to say. Yeah, and I think what we keep asking nines for, act like your presence matters. Assert yourself a little bit. And those are the two things they struggle with the most since childhood. I think that's part of the problem, and there needs to be some space for that. Also, watching movies brings up conversation. We're watching a series now Different Shades of America. Shades of America is the name of it, I think. And it's all these different groups of people that the host says he knew nothing about, so he went to interview them. That has sparked, after all these years, a lot of conversation for Dad and me. So I think what she needs to work on her marriage is exactly what you're suggesting, which is some kind of stimulus from outside. But then the payoff doesn't come in right then it comes later and be careful that wanting as a seven wanting things to switch a little or be a little different 
be careful that that doesn't become an expectation that can't be met. I think there is a huge difference in wanting some excitement from adventure in a nine and spontaneity in a seven. Those two things are not the same. We were talking about the Burks at the top of this podcast. John doesn't tell Dad anymore where they're going on horses when we're in Colorado. And Dad comes back wide-eyed and says, he's crazy. He's crazy the places he took me. And Dad loved it. Of course. Yeah. But if John laid it out, I don't know that Dad would say, okay, that sounds great. Right. And I don't, I don't know, Joel, if I really understand what sevens need in marriage after a time. I know that sevens need change and spontaneity, but I'm not sure I know what that feels like for you. It's still super early in this yeah, marriage, so yeah. I'm not to, to the point where I can contribute much on that. I know kind of at the beginning, one of the things that I thought of listening to her question and then answering your question, I think a big thing is expectations. I think sevens, I need to know what is expected of me in my marriage. That's why the big, broad, general expectation isn't as helpful. What do you want done? What do you want from me? And then I'll do it and or I won't. But at least I know the specifics of it. Walking around with just a big expectation, that's, I don't know. Mm-mm. It's interesting that you started with expectations of you because I expected you to talk about what you expect, which is what I was wondering about. It is unfair for me to have expectations, big expectations or a lot of expectations, because I, I don't want things to be concrete. Does that make sense? I want things to be able to change yes, and the plan to change and the mood to change. And so with constant enjoyable change to keep the set expectation is unfair and unrealistic. And so that's why my expectations of Whitney are broad in general. Yeah. <laughs> but I would like for her to have some specific ones of me to, so I guess that's super unfair now that I say that out loud. Well, I wonder, too, if our friend in Uganda, who we could go visit, she said, by the way, y'all come. Um, I wonder if she's wanting things they do to be the nines idea. That's what we don't know this person from. No, we don't. Whoever. But it's kind of like when you're talking about the last question from the eight, you can kind of feel where where they're coming from. And if the eight is asking this question, then it kind of identifies a need or want that, that, that she had. Sure. I think it's the same here. So that's where if I'm, I was projecting myself in the idea of bring the outside stimulus, join a group, something, you know, it seems like that's what she's asking for is, Hey, you, you come on with what you want to do and your ideas. And, and I think it's a misunderstanding to think that nines have a lot of ideas of what they want to do that they're not doing. Since childhood, they were content to be part of what you're doing. When he tells her 
that things are great and he's good. I think things are pretty great and he's good. I don't think he's being dishonest. But is, is about she that. asking the wrong question? Yeah, she yeah. is. She is. And and it's so broad to say, if I said to dad as a nine, let's work on our marriage, he would not have any idea, I don't think, how to respond to that. I think he would just look at me. I will say this, though, about being married to a nine. Sometimes you want them to initiate something. You don't want everything to be your idea and you want them to contribute in some meaningful way. Okay, so we have talked about dating and the before. Now we've done a little bit of during the marriage talk and conversation. And now we are to our third question. Hi, Suzanne. My name is Casey. I'm a type one wing two, and I'm a new listener to your podcast. As I was listening to your episodes with Tony Jones and Enneagram type eight, you said something that stood out to me. You told Tony who had gone through a painful divorce that his lens was changed because of his experience with vulnerability. I have gone through my own painful divorce and can confidently say that my type one lens has permanently changed. For me, I experienced complete failure, public shame, and the opposite of perfection. Before my divorce, I would have described myself as self-righteous and judgmental. But on the other side, I found grace, redemption, and unconditional acceptance. I'm a softer, more loving, and more empathetic person now. My question is, what is the primary thing each type must experience in order to drastically change their lens in this way? Thanks for all you do. Wow. First of all, um, congratulations on your growth and transformation because that was a very non-one question. I want to talk a little bit about divorce. Then I'm going to work with Joel and we'll see if we together can answer the rest of your question. We talked a little bit when we were talking about dating and marriage that relationships um, sometimes have a shelf life. They're not, all relationships don't last forever. And sometimes we get in relationships for the wrong reasons. And sometimes people stay in marriage for the wrong reasons. Someone that I was really close to, a young couple, were trying to hold their marriage together for their child. And their therapist said, the best thing you could do for your child is not be married because your child doesn't get to watch real, true love between two people. And I know there are all kinds of Christian teachings about divorce is bad and once you get married, you should stay married forever or you are married forever. I know all of that. And I'm divorced 34 years ago, too. And so the first thing I want to do is acknowledge that not all marriages last a lifetime. And I don't know, in some big picture that I don't know about, maybe they're supposed to. But I don't see how they could. I think it's one of those things of context changes and the world changes. 
and everyone needs to find their own truth and their own journey. And so if you are someone who falls in the, uh, should never get divorced category, then, then okay. It's not a, we can respect that. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, (laughs) I loved a girl once and I, her parents were not thrilled with she dating me. And so I met with her dad to try to talk it out. And I was like, man, I can understand he, cause I had a felony kids, divorce, um, in recovery as an alcoholic, like long list of things. And he, <laughs> he was okay with everything except that I was divorced I was like, oh, man, of all the things, like you picked the one that can't do anything about whatsoever. That's right. That's right. And there's nothing to do but respect that that's his stance and not yours. I don't actually think there's an answer to the rest of the question. I think what changes a lens the lens for each of us involves way too many things that are contributors to our personality type, but not necessarily a part of personality type. I'm very happy that, Casey, that you have found on the other side of divorce a softer more gentle, kinder, happier, better you. But there are ones who go through divorce who don't find that and whose lens is harder to change, maybe because of past experience or current circumstances. It doesn't always work like it worked for you. I do think that a new lens is available for everybody on the other side of a difficult, potentially transformative experience. So I want to talk a second about change and transformation because change is when you take on something new and transformation occurs when something old falls away, usually something that you're not in control of. And for Casey, your marriage ended and something old fell away And it was a transformative experience for you. Sometimes people end marriages and it's just a change and it's not transformative. And so the lens doesn't change. Is it fair to say that a divorce can be a traumatic experience, like a type of trauma? Absolutely. And it would seem to me if we come out of this pandemic the exact same way that we went into it, it's really sad for all the people, for anybody who is the exact same mm-hmm. when this is over. Yeah. And that's how I would like to look at the divorce is if after a divorce and something so traumatic that happens to you, to not grow from it, to not learn, to not discover something new about yourself. And the only way to do that is through pain and suffering and hardship. Right. Then, you know, that's awesome. And that she is, like you said, uh, that that yep. is what happened to her. Yep. Do you think there is something, because, and you're right, oh my gosh, all the variables in a divorce. So many. And in context and, 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 and. 
but she mentioned shame being a big issue. Do you think for people that are on a journey, because I know Whitney, when she went through her divorce, shame was a big issue, fellow one. I don't think shame was an issue for me. Came out completely different on the other end. It wasn't, I think initially it was just change. It was, this marriage isn't working, not going to work, divorce, and then do after, and then it took time for me to, to be different. To figure out fair? what you learned. You saw me. You, yeah. yeah. I think you know you're different, but you don't know how because you, you, you have so many other things you have to tend to. Mm-hmm. You have to have a place to live. You got to deal with, all, all, you know, like all the things that happen yeah. around divorce. And I, I was divorced a long time before I got a divorce. As a two, I believed that I could love enough for everybody. And that's so I could go through what's wrong. I just don't know that I can say what's transformative, except that she allowed transformation. And you can't make that happen. And do you think this is more a question then about coming through trauma and not about divorce? I think it is specifically something that I was talking to Tony about that was helpful to Casey in that time in her life. And other people may not have even caught that that was said. Or I, I think pain is different for everybody. And what I was trying to say about me as a two believing I could love enough for everybody. It was painful for me to figure out that I couldn't love enough for me and for him. And I think it's painful for a one to figure out that the choices they made were imperfect. And for a three to not look successful. And Right? I can do that surface stuff, but I'm just not sure it's applicable because... What changes the lens is really personal to everybody. For example, Tony's marriage and divorce was very public. And people took sides publicly. That would be very hard for anybody to go through. I don't know anybody else that's happened to. And I... Brad and Angelina. (laughs) Tony will like that. I think this about all of what we're talking about. Each heart must make its own choices. Each heart has to have its own experience. And each experience has its own purpose. And after that comes the new lens. Life is really hard. It's complex And it's really hard right now during the pandemic. And I'm curious to see coming out of all of this, maybe in the summer and in the fall, how many relationships are better and how many didn't make it. Because everything is in a pressure cooker. And how many are better and they didn't make it. (laughs) Yes, yes. And... Life's just really hard. And Casey, I really appreciate the question. I'm learning that I can make an effort to run through numbers 
and probably say something that's fairly valuable. But I don't think that's the best option. Well, you know what the most valuable part of this, I think, is what she shared. Sure. Again, you talk about no number can share like that number. It it speaks to what Tony Jones did Mm -hmm. by sharing his experience. And I bet we'll hear from someone saying that they were so happy to hear her question and hear her thoughts because, you know, we all just want to know that we're not alone in Absolutely. in the journey. And so she's not alone and someone else is going to hear this. And It'll be really helpful, really helpful to ones. It's interesting that ones feel shame. At, well, we haven't done a large study, but right. we know two now who have felt shame. I didn't feel any shame either. I married the wrong person for the wrong reason, tried to make it work for a number of years and couldn't do it. What are we going to do as a society so that we don't feel like other people have to believe the same things that we believe and feel the same way that we feel? Until we believe that it's possible to be insiders with no outsiders, we're not going to get there. People can't seem to hold on to we're all in this together and we all get it right and we all get it wrong. And you've heard me teach for years the best way for a group to cohere is around a common enemy. And then what you do is you make everything that the enemy does wrong and that the outsiders do that and the insiders do this. And then people find comfort in that. And I don't find any comfort in that. When I feel like I'm an insider, I get very nervous because I know I'm about to do something that's going to make me an outsider. Everybody wants to belong. Everybody does. And we somehow have limited belonging to an understanding that if there aren't people that don't belong, then our belonging doesn't have any meaning. And that's not true. That's just not true. You know, we've been through so much in the last few months in terms of relationships and so much understanding about gender difference, cultural difference, racial difference. So many things have come up during this time of anxiety and angst everywhere. And the answer that Dad and I have come to is grace. We believe that we need to be offering grace to everybody, to people who aren't kind to us, to people who are, to people who make decisions we don't agree with. Thomas Merton said it. He he said, God's love is mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. And we, at times, all of us, seem to feel so much better with judgment than mercy. Unless it's we who need the mercy and the grace. Seems like grace and mercy can play a role in the answer to all three questions. Mm-hmm. If we can't show ourselves grace and mercy, it's going to be hard to show it to other people. And you deserve it as well. Yeah, I'm, as you know, working on a book. And I'm to the end. 
And it's like, okay, after all this work, what do I want to say? And I ultimately want to be able to say, this is all a journey and we all get it right and we all get it wrong. And we could be so much better to one another. We could make so much more room for one another. And honestly, Joel, one of the things that brought me back to that in my mid to late 60s is you. People who are in recovery, who are doing the work, have a lot of grace for other people. And there have been moments when I'm tired and we're in some hotel where I ran into the wall during the night when I got up to go to the bathroom because I don't know where I am and I'm missing dad and all that. And I'll say some snarky judgmental thing and you'll just quietly say, well, you know, we don't know what their day's been like or we don't know their story. And I think that what that proves is when people are working on themselves, they have more mercy and more grace to offer to other people. The thing that has changed my life, a lot of things have changed my life, but every day changed my life, is that uh, you could be wrong. Mm-hmm. No matter what it is, Joel, you could be wrong. And even if you're not wrong, there might be another, there might be another way. Mm-hmm. I feel like, in general, we don't carry that enough. Everyone. You put a Richard Rohr quote up recently on social media. Mm-hmm. And it's an incredible quote. I love it. The majority of the people loved it. And a few people you know, did not and made sure we knew you it. knew that. Yep. And it's just like, well, I look forward to a world <laughs> utopia where people can just leave things alone. Like the number. Yeah. Of, do you think, though, when people put all that energy into disagreeing with a post that I put up, do you think they're trying to convince themselves that they're right or trying to convince me that I'm wrong? I have, I have no clue. Well, it didn't convince me that I was wrong. I want to ask a question to leave with Casey. I hear you that as a one, you felt all kinds of shame and humiliation right after your divorce because that's expected. And you have a voice in your head that tells you you should be ashamed and you could have made this work and you should have done this and this and this. And I tried to tell you all along what you should be doing and that you were a terrible wife and all the stuff voices tell you. But if you take into account how you feel about yourself and other people and where you find yourself now, could it be shameful? Could you be that wrong? Could your shame have been just a piece of transitioning from one place to another? I hope so. Sounds like you have a lot of peace, and I hope the person that you're divorced from has the same. And grace uh, for both of you. I don't think judging or judgment needs to play as big a role in my understanding of Christianity and faith as it does. We've been doing this Advent thing, uh, your family and mine, and we talked last week on our Advent program about didn't light the candle every day, didn't do morning prayers every day, 
I don't feel any shame about that. I feel like I did it a lot of days, and I know that we're about to celebrate Jesus coming again, and I'm busy trying to find the right thing to celebrate that I deliver to my grandchildren who I can't be with. And that's as good as lighting a candle. seems like what, what you the, focus on determines what you're missing, right? Yeah. and what, He's not in here right now, and he could definitely hit it home, but you can probably help out or do just as good a job. I'm sorry. That sounded really <laughs> to me. Well, what's terrible? We're going to do our best with, uh, with, with what we've got what we here. Actually, I, I don't know what you're going to say yet, but I, I bet you he could hit it home and I might be able to help. The idea that when ritual takes place over what's more important, right? Which is like it, which is your heart, or I'm again, I, mm-hmm. you would be better than me. The Reverend would be better at you than mm-hmm. you at talking about what I'm talking about here. But it's when we're so committed to the ritual that we forget why we're doing it. Exactly. And if your heart is not in it, mm-hmm. and your heart is with this thing, which is life giving and full of love and compassion, then that's okay. And to feel shame about missing the candle lighting is not, I don't think that's what, that's not what my God would want. Well, that's not what the candles are supposed to represent. It's not another, gotcha, you didn't do Tuesday. And it's the whole thing that we've been talking about in Advent, of that God doesn't want another offering. No, no sacrifice. Yeah. Mercy. God wants mercy. Mercy. Not sacrifice. Yeah. So here's what I try to live by. Dad and I have lost all four of our parents. And when they each were dying and we had little kids, we had a lot to tend to. And our question when we didn't know what to do or where we were supposed to be was, How can I manage this so that I have no regrets? I have one, only one regret. And that is that the last Christmas that my mom was alive, there was an ice storm and we couldn't get there and she was alone for Christmas. I couldn't do anything about that. The things I could do something about, I don't have regrets about because I asked the question. Because dad and I were in a conversation about which of these choices is going to be the right one? The other thing that we've done and that we kind of redo as stages of life change is, okay, what are our priorities? And the way we make choices is based on our priorities. I think one of the best stories that I could offer to people to put in their pocket about living your priorities is this, if you say that your family is more important than your job, then how are you going to live that? Dad was an associate years ago. Jenny was in the third grade, and Dad was an associate at First Methodist in Richardson. And the senior pastor said to him, I need you to be with this new Sunday school class on Friday night We've worked really hard to get them together, and they're having a social, and I need you to be there. You're the person for the job. And Dad said, I'm sorry, I I can't. I have a commitment Friday night. And the other pastor said, well, this is work. What commitment do you have? And Dad said, well, our daughter Jenny is DeLion in Darius and DeLion 
the musical, and I am going to be here to see her. And the pastor said, well, she's performing it three times. And Dad said, yep, and I'm going to be there all three times. And he was kind of grumpy, but then he said, all right, all right. Well, then as soon as it's over, you can go to the social. And Dad said, no, I won't be able to do that either. Our whole family's coming and we're having everybody over to celebrate Jenny after it's over. Things like that, I remember forever and Jenny remembers forever. And that Sunday school class, they don't care if Dad came or not. But we wouldn't make those choices if we didn't have a guide. So the reason I'm telling those two stories is to put some something tangible around the fact that you got to make decisions beforehand about how you're going to live. And then you live by those decisions in the moment. And our family, our children and grandchildren, are more important to us than Advent wreaths and morning prayers. And we can't be together for Christmas, so that made the gifts even more important to us this year. And I feel really great about that. I feel really great about Casey and Christmas and her being happy. And I feel really great about Anonymous saying, I want to have a family and I'm a female aide and I don't know what to do with myself. Right? Mm-hmm. And I feel really great. I forget ab- her name too. About uh, Uganda and her husband. Because she's asking, what can I do to make this what it can be? So, man, those are three such different things. And it offered us an opportunity to talk about a lot of things that I hope are helpful. I'm not sure we specifically answered questions as specifically as I'm often able to do. Well, I I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I feel Feel, feel good. good. Yeah. So I'm missing we, our morning curriculum group ended. And so we're, this is being recorded early in the week. And like, all right, I'm in a, I'm in a better place right now to, yeah. to move forward. So thank you. And thank you all for your questions. Keep them coming in. And thank you all for listening and for being a part of, part of the show. And thank you. Yeah, you too.